Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Warfare. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode, we're looking at Operation Barbarossa. After all, it is 80 years this year since Hitler double-crosses Stalin, tears up the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and sends 6 million Nazi troops towards the gates of Moscow. On their way, they commit their brutal scorched-earth tactics that saw millions of Soviet citizens massacred. That is a level of brutality that really is only paralleled by Stalin's regrouping of the Red Army and sending a red tidal wave back at Hitler, driving them off the Eastern Front and, of course, through towards Berlin. To tell us all about this, we have the BAFTA award-winning Stuart Bins. He is responsible for those landmark documentaries that brought the Second World War back to our TVs, back to life. Those in-colour series like America at War, The Second World War in Colour and Britain at War. That's the one that he got the BAFTA for. He's also the author of several fiction and non-fiction books, the latest of which is Barbarossa, The Bloodiest War in History. It is a remarkable book. I've had the absolute pleasure of reading it. I would say it's one of the first that really takes us into the personal stories behind that war on the Eastern Front, a story that's told predominantly from the Soviet side, so a really important addition to the history. So here he is, Stuart Bins on Operation Barbarossa. Hi Stuart, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, James, thanks. Delighted to be on your podcast. Well, thanks so much. We're delighted to have you on. I've been reading your new book and I find it absolutely fascinating. But I've got to ask, so much has been written on Barbarossa. What is it that has inspired you to write this book? Well, I mean, two reasons, really, James. One is a sort of personal, long-term relationship with what was originally the Soviet Union, now Russia, and I'll start with that one. I discussed the, the idea with Alex Clark, the publisher at uh, Wildfire, about whether or not it would make sense to the reader to explain where I was coming from in writing the book, because obviously I'm not a professional historian. I'm not an academic, but 20th century history is what I've always worked in. 
whether it's been in military history, First World War, Second World War, a lot of 20th century sport is a particular passion of mine, but I'm not a historian. I'm a sort of gadfly, as a, or even perhaps a parasite, as a lot of writers of history <laughs> are. They flip from one historical subject to another. They pluck the best material from other authors, and they take their view of it and so on. My personal passion, the Russian people, what I actually call at the beginning of the book, the soul of Russia, uh, which is a metaphor, obviously. But um, I first went to uh, the Soviet Union, as it was, <laughs> believe it or not, in 1969, when I was a second year student at university, two or three of us were looking for an adventure. And fortunately we took, there were two couples. One of the girls was a, um, was a fluent Russian speaker. So we, we had something of an advantage. It was a great trip, an extraordinary trip. We, we arrived in Norway. We went through Sweden and Finland and arrived in the Soviet Union at a border town called Vyborg and then where the adventure began. Um, and then we went right through, right to the South, to the Black Sea and, and then back through the Balkans, Austria, and so on, back home. We were for about six weeks, and it was an absolutely extraordinary adventure because, of course, the Soviet Union was so very different from the 60s in the West. So that was the beginning of the love affair because they were suffering then, struggling then from, from a regime that had, you know, was softer than, than Stalin's time, but it was still pretty grim. But they got on with it, and they remained full of humour and goodwill and friendship, so that was the beginning. And then during my professional life later, when I got into telly and I started making historical documentaries, the Russian state archives were a huge treasure trove of material. Belostolby, uh, Krasnogorsk, the film archives, 20th century history was, you know, they had extraordinary stuff there. So I kept going back and back to Eastern Europe and so on. And I found that, you know, the, the Russians are admirable in so many ways. They have a hard life. They've had hard lives for centuries. You know, they had the czars and then and they got rid of them and then they ended up with Bolshevik revolution, oppression, Stalin, then the Second World War, then they have to go back to Stalin. Then they have the breakup of the Soviet Union and a, a few years of liberality and uh, optimism and progress. And guess what? They've now got Putin. And it's a pretty harsh deal. But... Those experiences have, have hardened them in a particular way. They've made them cautious, defensive. But during that time, because of the, the regimes, we've created stereotypes about them. They are aggressive, tough, hard-faced, difficult. But I, I don't think they are any of those things. I think many of their regimes have been. But as people, I, I think they just they are defensive in the sense of having suffered a lot. But they're Stoics. They're not aggressive. They protect themselves. They are hugely patriotic of their own homeland and so on. When I looked at the literature, obviously the history started off mainly using the, the diaries of the German generals and their post-war accounts, you know, trying to justify what they did and trying to sort of pretend that they weren't involved in any of the atrocities. And a lot of the histories were based on that because obviously we weren't involved. There was no first-hand British or American experience and the Soviet Union was closed. So Germany was really the only source. Then when it started to open up, you got bigger and better histories done, and people started to look at Soviet and Eastern Europe perspective, but not to any great depth. And I read a very good account of Ivan's War by Catherine Meridale, which is one of the very few other books that have attempted to look at it 
from the perspective of the ordinary Soviet soldier. But there was very little civilian uh, material in Merrydale, and it was very much Ivan's war. But that was the beginning, and I thought, we can do more here. So maybe we can actually start with that, take a different take to just looking at the great power politics, which is what you usually do when we talk about the invasion of the Soviet Union by Hitler. And instead, let's talk about that fateful day on Sunday, June the 22nd, 1941, when Hitler did invade the Soviet Union. How did it unfold? Well, pretty pretty catastrophically from the point of view of the Red Army, it was a extraordinary bloodletting, an onslaught of the like of which has never been seen before or since. So many, so much armor, so many men, so much power against a, a Red Army that just wasn't ready. You know, the, the pact beforehand, you know, what I called Satan's pact with the devil was you know, an extraordinary piece of political expediency designed by both Hitler and Stalin to give them time to get ready for what they really wanted. But unfortunately, Hitler used that time effectively and Stalin didn't. Of course, destroying the, <laughs> the hierarchy of the Red Army in the purges before the war didn't help them get ready, of course. So the you know what happened on that morning is just extraordinary. I don't think there's been a precedent in history where so much power has been thrown at something so quickly in such huge numbers and so much territory has been gained so quickly. In fact, if you look at the the accounts, look at the histories, there's total confusion. It's very hard to say what happened where and when because nobody really knows. The history suggests that at one point Wehrmacht was at point X and then a few hours later it was at point Y. What happened in between, in a way, has never been really recorded properly. The impact it must have had on the morale, obviously the Wehrmacht must have thought that they were impregnable, they were overwhelmingly powerful, and the Red Army just, on the whole, just ran as quickly as they could to get away from the slaughter that was happening all around them. It must have been a glorious summer morning in those peaceful pastures along the border where, you know, ordinary people have been living for centuries in very humble villagers living a very simple lifestyle, miles from anywhere, really. I mean, it's not like Western Europe, which if you go far enough, you'll come across a huge city. This is land of huge tracts of open land. And suddenly you've got these machines of war pouring fire onto civilian populations, as well as the Red Army, and a slaughter that, you know, is just indescribable. We can only imagine how awful it must have been. Years ago, I was fortunate enough to find archives in, in Moscow, in Krasnogorsk, some film of the invasion in colour. There was a young German, I think he was an NCO, who took a camera with him at Barbarossa. The film went back to Germany, obviously. But then, of course, when the Red Army took Moscow, they stole or acquired lots of the German film archives. And this film went to Moscow. Anyway, the pictures are amazing because all you see is armour running across huge, dusty open tracts of land with you know this German advance and then after a while coming the other way are these huge long columns of Red Army prisoners in their greatcoats you know just looking completely forlorn and at that point if you'd asked a betting man or anyone who knew anything about military history you would have said they'll be in Moscow in in six weeks you know the war's over it's gone there's no defense because the Red Army has been destroyed at that point. The real story of some of the battles really only begins to pick up in August when 
the line stiffens and there are some counterattacks. And then the Red Army has an opportunity then to start recording actually what was going on. But up to that point, it's total chaos. I was going through your book and I came across an account of that day from an officer. I think his name was Dmitry Laminikov. And he said that our defences were poor, most were hardly finished. And I've got to ask, how is that possible? Why is that the case? Is this an intelligence failure or is this a failure at the very top? Has Stalin been duped here? I don't know. It's a matter of huge, huge debate even today in Russia. You know, who was at fault? Who was to blame? Why did it happen? Because clearly for many, many years afterwards, you know, the propaganda tried to cover up the inadequacies of the defences. I think it's to do with a lack of familiarity with a new form of warfare that actually, you know, Blitzkrieg wasn't that new. Uh, it had been talked about a lot, but it never really effectively been put into practice until the invasion of Western Europe, of course. But even with that experience and even with the speed and rapidity which Western Europe fell, nobody quite realised how powerful it was going to be. And I think that includes the Kremlin and the hierarchy of the Red Army. It took them completely by surprise. Is that incompetence, uh, a lack of preparedness? Yes, of course it is. But it was also true in eastern France when the invasion happened there. It It was also true in the Low Countries. And indeed, it would have been true on the south coast of England should Hitler have chosen to invade. We weren't prepared either. As far as Stalin's concerned, he was so concerned about consolidating his power and wiping out his rivals. And because he got this pact with Hitler, he didn't realise how devastating it was going to be. It was an extraordinary shock to all of them. I think you're absolutely correct. I think it was you know, a whole new way of warfare and we underestimate that really. And it takes a long time for politicians and for military planners to react to that and find ways to counter it. I think in the policy talk, we'd call it a, uh, a strategic shock or a strategic surprise. And I think Stalin is said to have even gone into a, a period of shock and depression after this, isn't he? Yes, indeed. Those stories have begun to come out now about how morose he was uh, and how frightened he was. I found a, a Pravda photograph of Stalin sitting slunched over with his elbows on his knees, looking really forlorn, shot in what looks like a corridor. Around about the time, must have been sometime in July. And at that point, he, was, he clearly thought the war was over in the sense of losing Western Russia. I mean, clearly there was a plan to move everything that was important beyond the Urals. And in fact, huge strides were undertaken to make that happen as the Germans approached Moscow. But leaving that aside, there was a particular moment when the senior members of the Politburo asked to go and see him. And it's pretty clear, if you read the material, that he thought his number was up. And in fact, what they were saying to him is that he should take supreme control of everything. And he was very pleasantly surprised because I think he was expecting a bullet rather than a promotion. Such was the intrigue going on in Moscow at that time, instigated largely by him, of course. They also got lucky in several respects. Hitler was overconfident, as always. He went too late, as most historians have suggested. So confident was he that the Blitzkrieg would carry him through. He didn't think it was an issue. But when you think the invasion began in midsummer instead of in the spring, then you can see how different it could have been had Hitler made other decisions. 
what also happened in and around the chaos is that the middle ranks of the Red Army who'd escaped the purges managed to come through and, and assert a certain amount of calm and authority and began some counterattacks and began to dig in and to fight back. Uh, and that was important and clearly had crucial figures like Chukov and Zhukov and, and Konev and others who did know what they were doing. And then, of course, typically, as we all know, the Russians got lucky in the sense that um, the Wehrmacht overextended itself. You know, it was all very well for the Stukas and the Panzers to go marauding through, but there was nothing behind them to support them. You know, how did you get more supplies and more oil and fuel to the Panzers if they're so far ahead of you? And so that started to begin to be an issue, as, of course, was the other lucky thing is that Hitler kept changing his mind and moving people around and sacking generals he didn't like and issuing new directives, concentrating on Leningrad for a while and then going back to Moscow. And then when they got bogged down in Moscow, thinking, actually, why don't we go and get the oil? <laughs> so that kind of muddle thinking was another stroke of good luck for the Red Army. As, of course, we had an enormous stroke of good luck when he decided not to invade us. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As Hitler is muddling back and forth and being distracted left, right and centre, and certainly not learning from his military history... What's going on in the Soviet Union at this point? Is it here that the Wehrmacht start to take on their great sieges and scorched earth and extermination start becoming the word of the day? If the man who's taking those muddled decisions, who of course was not a general, he had no experience running military campaigns, it rather suggests he's not going to think all that clearly about the issues at hand because he's going to devote huge amounts of resources to doing things that don't have necessarily any military benefit. The number of personnel used to create ghettos and to round up people and to run oppressive regimes in all the territories he conquered is not the best use of resources. Plus, someone with that level of hatred is clearly not always going to think all that logically with his generals and you know with the sort of temper that he has so if a general says the wrong thing to him he fires him or he berates him or he humiliates him is not conducive to good morale within the senior echelons of your army so there are a whole range of flawed decisions plus an atmosphere that he created of paranoia and fear and distrust which clearly undermined everything that he was doing. On the other hand, what was happening within Moscow and within all levels within the Red Army and within the civilian population was a a growing cohesion built around two things, really. First of all, it was their homeland that they were trying to save. And it was a regime, although not many of them were devoted communists. They did have something to hold on to. They did have an ideology, an egalitarian ideology, that many people still, if not in love with, still respected in the sense that they would know from their parents, and some of them would know from first-hand experience, that this regime had completely changed their lives. I did find one witness who talked about how awful it was to live in the suburbs of Leningrad during the time of the Tsars and what had happened after the revolution in terms of good housing, schools, education, medical care, because it was an extraordinary transformation, although it was also supported by terror and oppression, and a huge number of people benefited from it and were inspired by it. And egalitarianism is always an inspiration for people, even if it's a false dawn, it doesn't really matter. So as the Germans are marauding westwards, but with a flawed leader making flawed decisions, and with serious supply issues, you'd got an opposition growing stronger in that their resources were infinitely greater in the sense of being supported by Britain and the United States. They'd move a lot of their heavy machinery and heavy factories and plant eastwards in a very, very 
decisive move, an important move that they did very early on to move huge amounts of material by train eastwards so that they could carry on making tanks and produce ammunition. So you've got a, a red army getting stronger, a regime becoming more cohesive and a people fighting harder, especially as it became obvious how awful their opponents were. Because obviously one of two things happened if you're facing a terrifying attack. You either give in, as a lot of people did, of course, or you fight back. And a lot of people started to fight back. And that began to make a difference. So when does this fight back begin? When does the red tide start to rise? It begins to harden. A lot of young people start to come forward to volunteer as partisans, for example. A lot of people go to the recruitment centres to join the Red Army. And the ones who were captured and killed are quite quickly replaced. One of the benefits of having an authoritarian regime of the sort that they had in the Soviet Union is that it's well organised. You know, liberal regimes very often tend not to be very well organised because people don't like doing as they're told. But in non-liberal regimes, like in Germany and in the Soviet Union, people are used to doing as they're told. There was a lot of carrot and stick going on. Catherine Meridale talks a lot about the NKVD punishment uh, battalions and what would happen to people who deserted or were seen to weaken in the face of the enemy and so on. And a lot of that was was happening. That's true. And, and, And the drive forward from the Red Army is just completely ruthless, isn't it? I mean, when I was going through some of my research into some of the cluster bombings over the ice roads, for example, the Germans dropping their Sprembomb Dickwandig 2kg, the way in which the Red Army would dispose of these bombs was simply sending a soldier up with their rifle to shoot it. And the trouble is, is that the blast of that bomb would take out the soldier as well. So, you know, there really wasn't the same value put onto life. It was that key political objective to push the Germans back. And I've got to ask, is it here that we start to see a turn towards atrocities from the Red Army themselves? Is there an element of revenge as they move forwards? Clearly, words started to get back very quickly about what was happening. When the Germans captured Red Army soldiers, and very quickly word got back about what was happening in the captured territories, what they were doing to the villages and people who got in their way. That created a a hatred that I suppose many people have argued was as great as the hatred that they'd suffered at the hands of the Germans. I've never thought there was much value in trying to put the two parts of hatred on a balance scale to see if they match. Because in a way, it's not surprising that the viciousness of the Soviet response was as bad as it was, given what was done to them. I think it's far more telling is the first dose of hatred coming from the Germans, which was not based on any experience or anything that had been done to them, but was based on an ideology of hatred created by Hitler and created by this sense that, you know, they were the master race and any other race was inferior. And because they were inferior, there was no problem exterminating them. And I'm not talking about the Jews here, I'm talking about the Slavs, because Hitler managed to convince himself that Slavic peoples were inferior, and therefore it didn't matter how they were treated. That, to me, is the most perverse of two hatreds in the balance scale. And it seems to me it's easy for us, with hindsight, sitting in our relatively unharmed countries, to sort of make a judgment call about the way the Red Army reacted. Lots of the Germans who were captured as the Red Army rolled 
westwards never made it home and ended up in gulags and ended up starving or freezing to death and so on. All round, it was the most horrendous and awful of all wars. 40 million dead. I mean, it's just, the numbers are incomprehensible. There was a, uh, a line in your book that struck me, actually, Stuart, as I was reading through. You know one of those lines where you're reading and it stops you in your tracks? You were trying to make sense of the casualty numbers from the war on the Eastern Front. And the one line you say is that we round this up to the nearest million. And for me, that really just shows exactly how far the inhumanity of humanity can go. But one of the things that you know I have to thank you for in your book is you really, really do bring those personal voices and those personal stories back up to show that this is humans that are being killed. These are not just figures, and this is truly the brutality and the horror of war. So Stuart, perhaps you could tell us, where can people buy the book? When is it out? Well, the book is coming out at the end of April. I think it's the last Thursday in April. It's a wildfire publication. Wildfire is part of Headline. And uh, my publisher is a wonderful Alex Clark, um, particularly as when I suggested to him that I write a book about a Second World War story, which had no Brits or Americans in it. I was surprised that he said yes. I'm delighted that he said yes. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And you're always welcome back on. Great to be on, James, and thanks for taking care of me and taking me through the process. My first ever podcast, I believe. Wow, well, there you go. It is an honour. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.